Claude Bernard used to say that that delicate balance within us is maintained through a close and wise relationship with the environment. Uh, the emphasis is on why is there. Modern medicine with a lot of the chronic diseases we see is a reflection of how that wise relationship has been lost, leading to damage. And the necessity then for so many medications, I mean, 70% of Americans, I believe, are on chronic prescription drugs. You know, it's no way to live. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Reinvent Health podcast. Here we get to chat to some of the world's most interesting and influential people about everything to do with physical, mental and spiritual well-being. If you want to make healthy changes and live a better life, you are in the right place. Please don't forget to rate, leave a review and share with everyone who wants to live their best life. And now your host, Nikki Robertson. In this episode, I chat once again to endocrinologist Dr. Sandy Bruder about hormone replacement therapy, the difference between pharmaceutical HRT and bioidentical hormone replacements, as well as the reasons behind declining testosterone levels in men. But most importantly, how sleep and the lifestyle choices we make determines our experience with naturally declining hormones. Dr. Bruder's contact details are available in the show notes. So welcome. Thank you for joining me again on the podcast. I have so many people who listen, have listened to our past discussions and who've asked, um, you know, what is hormone replacement therapy? Should they be taking hormone replacement therapy? What is the difference between traditional hormone replacement therapy and say bioidenticals? So being the expert that you are, I thought let's chat about that today and look at all the options and what we can um, how we can enlighten people who are going in that direction. The first thing to do is actually understand menopause first and why the need for HRT came out. Yes. I mean, um, the earliest description of menopause from what I've read is by Aristotle. He defined it uh, at the age of 40. In fact, the, the word menopause, I mean, he didn't define it at the age of 40. He defined menopause for women at the age of 40. So it was recognized then already. And, and the word menopause itself comes from Greek terminology. So meno refers to monthly or month, and pause means cessation of or stoppage of. So there was a recognition of a stopping of this monthly rhythm, you know. And I think it was only in the 1930s where, you know, as medicine became more modernized and more biomedicalized, that institutions were developed um, that started discussing the symptomatology around menopause. And remember, now we're getting into the era of a post-industrialized society. So when things become more biomedicalized and lifestyles change, there's more emphasis on symptoms that go with that change. I'm not exactly certain when HRT came to the fore. I know the pill was developed in the 19, late 1960s, early 70s, somewhere there oral contraceptive pills. So it would be around there that the early uh, studies were done, the Women's Health Initiative using uh, Premarin, pregnant mare urine, the estrogens from conjugated equine estrogens as such. So somewhere around there. And then I think the thing to highlight is also is that perhaps there was a match between a recognition of symptoms at that era 
in that era, and then the need to treat those symptoms. You know, and the question always becomes: Is menopause always seen as a negative thing? Um, and when you read around it, it's not actually. It's more a Western construct of sure. a deficiency disease per se. Um, and that's where we need to understand it from that perspective. So the word menopause has different connotations depending on who you're speaking to and where you're speaking to people. Certainly in the environment I'm in, it's, it's the dreaded time of life. And as, I think it's important to have a conversation around that as well in terms of perspective, you know? Yeah. Yes. And you, we yeah. did talk about that where, you know, there's this, it's just the Western culture that doesn't embrace a change of life as just another transition of something that we're moving into. It's, it's almost that in the Western world, we try and stop everything from happening and we try to control everything and control for all the variables, which is ridiculous because we can't stop time marching on. So, yeah, it's, it is a mindset. If it is an established mindset, uh, perhaps it does need to be challenged a bit because if we are going to help patients who suffer terrible symptoms around menopause, then as we get into the discussion on the specifics of hormone replacement therapy, it's important we all talk about this holistic approach and we get patients coming to us for a holistic approach. But part of that holistic uh, approach necessitates that we need to challenge pre-held assumptions. And in fact, Nikki, it's important to discuss female hormonal health from a very early age. And I'll allude to some of the guidelines on HRT, what they say about it. But just to finish on this perspective issue, when you biomedicalize something too much um, and you call it a deficiency disease or disease of aging, and the word aging has negative connotations as well, then that creates a resistance in you against something which is a natural season of life. Uh, nature doesn't get it wrong in the way we tend to think. The problem is we're trying to fit a square plug into a round hole with very sort of busy lifestyle stress. Our diets are not great. We don't have time for good relations, sleeping well, etc. And there's a lot of science to show that this contributes to worse symptomatology uh, through perimenopause and menopause. And the guidelines, uh, scientifically evidenced guidelines, show that any opportunity a physician has to engage with a patient discussing menopausal symptoms, before we even begin the discussion on HRT, we should talk about the patients improving their diet, their activity levels, inculcating practices like yoga into uh, their lifestyles. Uh, trying to cut back on or stopping smoking, reducing alcohol, getting better sleep, looking at stress management. Now, while the guidelines say that is part of the treatment of menopausal patients, um, my view is that that discussion should be held very, very early. In fact, young girls going into their menarche and discussing hormonal health should be aware that these things should be incorporated into life as such, so that when that time of menopause comes, less likely to develop the severe symptoms we often see more in urban sort of cultures and environments. It's important to be aware of that. Yeah. Mm, great. So yeah, to make a habit of, of being more mindful about yourself, um, I think is always a good message. And yes, no one talks about it to young girls. I mean, I, mm. I, I find, you know, working with lots of teens and lots of very young women, it's almost... A, a foreign concept to many, many women, as opposed for men as well, to to start focusing on what they can do to 
improve their quality of life because at that age, I suppose we feel a little bit um, bomb-proof, like age is something that's far, far away. And but it yeah. is, it is something to 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 really bring into the conversation early on. But we don't do that as a culture, not in the West anyway. No, we don't, because unfortunately, you see the word culture. Uh, if you define it very simply, it's a group of people living in the same geographic region for a long period of time who inculcate the higher values of life. Now, the higher values of life are unselfish service, which is the work you do, uh, having gratitude, action, you're constantly working for national good, uh, dynamism, objectivity, you know. So these are the values I don't think we discuss. And it's important to bring it to the fore because we see it with youngsters as well, that there's this instant gratification uh, type of approach to life. We're looking forward, dopamine highs. You've had podcasts on this with various practitioners, uh, dopamine highs on social media and quick fixes. You know, it's so almost like every human can be a quick overnight celebrity. And so in that kind of uh, world where you're getting your highs out of that interaction, you're ignoring the long-haul approach, the cause and effect. And we're putting a lot of causes into play now that have an effect later. So when I see patients, women in menopause or perimenopause, where the symptoms are now hitting hard, the common symptoms, we call them vasomotor symptoms. So they get hot flashes, night sweats, mood symptoms. Uh, they can get more local symptoms like uh, perennial issues like vaginal dryness, difficulty with sexual engagement. Um, then they get um, even mood disorders that go towards depression as well. The weight gain is so common then, you know, and it's not menopause itself that contributes massively to weight gain. There's a bit of a weight change, but it's the underlying foundational uh, lifestyle and stuff that contributes to more weight gain in that sure. space. Mm -hmm. So just treating menopause with HRT is not going to relieve all those symptoms, you see. And this is why I think this conversation, what we're highlighting, uh, must be something that is more learned. And in fact, it, with, when we say younger people should be aware, it's not to force them into a prescriptive diet and exercise program. The very word diet, since we were talking of Greek history, yes. uh, the etymology of the word diet, the meaning of it has nothing to do with food, actually. It purely means a higher way of life. And in a higher way of life where you're pursuing your purpose, you will naturally be inclined to take care of the body to help you serve that purpose. So you're eating better, you're exercising, you're reading the right stuff, you're imbibing higher culture, you see, and uh, you are able to delay instant gratification. It's a mark of a higher human. Autonomy in patient care is dependent on the ability of a patient to delay instant gratification. You see, and uh, then you apply the correct laws and long term, you'll see the fruit of that labor, you know. So it's very important to 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 highlight that, I think. Yeah, yeah uh, the term delayed gratification is something that is just so rare nowadays. And mm -hmm. it's just, it's, I don't, it's, it's not even a concept that people even, uh, not that I'm aware of, that even give much thought to because everything is so instant. And we, we want to go to the doctor and get a magic pill and come back and yeah. knock 10 years off our lives and carry on without taking the responsibility for, for how we got there in the first place. So with the women that I see who come to me with apparent um, menopausal weight gain, it's almost never 
about the hormones. Mm. And it's almost always about the relationship they have with themselves. So, and it is, it's difficult to lose that weight because you've got to address the hard issues. It's not about going on a diet or taking a synthetic substance. So that's why it's tricky. And maintaining the consistency, even once we institute the changes, is a difficult part because the mind tends to wonder. And um, that uh, that inner consistency develop, uh, is, is uh, dependent on intellectual development. So at any level, I think if we can get critical thinking and self-sufficiency through executive function inculcated at a young age, then it concretizes through life. But to change habits uh, later is not impossible. It makes it more difficult. Sure. So I'm all for prevention and the earlier interventions. But having said that, there are those groups of patients that do suffer around this time. And then we have to have a good objective evidence-based approach to assist them with specific treatments then, you know? Okay. So what are those options then from your perspective and your experience? So once again, firstly, it's always important to define where the patient is in the transition And uh, firstly, I think it's important to clear up in this kind of discussion because the question always comes, Doc, am I in pre-menopause, perimenopause, menopause, post-menopause? Now, the important thing to understand there is we use these definitions just to get an understanding of this change. And a nice analogy to use is the change of seasons. You know, Uh, Autumn just doesn't become summer overnight. There's a transition period called spring. And even, I mean, winter doesn't change into summer overnight. It's it's winter, then the spring, then the summer. So the late winter will start warming up a little bit. The mornings are still chilled, evenings are still chilled, but the days are a little warmer. And then as the mornings and evenings warm up, you're getting into the late spring and then summer. So that's kind of like pre-menopause. Pre-menopause, you can get changes in your hormones, but you don't see them manifest outside. Perimenopause, peri means around the time of menopause, around the time of cessation of the cycle. And there you may start getting some symptoms of those changes, usually an irregular cycle, either they shorten or lengthen, there's a volume change, may get a hot flash or two in between here and there. Then actual menopause, the cessation of the cycle, is defined clinically as one year without a menstrual cycle. But then blood tests also confirm So that is when the ovaries have shut down and stopped producing estrogen and they will no longer ovulate. And reciprocally, the hormone that stimulates ovarian function from the pituitary called FSH will go sky high. So an undetectable estrogen level and a high FSH on blood tests confirm biochemically that you're in menopause, right? Okay, right. Um, there are other causes of low estrogen, like being on the pill and that sort of thing. So you shouldn't actually measure those hormones while you're on some sort of therapy, right? And then post-menopause is just referring to life after the cessation of the cycle. And it's important because certain risks occur after menopause, like cardiovascular risk goes up in women after then, cancer risk goes up, osteoporosis risk goes up, So you want to, as a practitioner, bring the patient into the fold and say, these are the things we need to look out for, try and prevent or treat if they're there, right? Now, when the patient goes through menopause, they don't necessarily have to have symptoms. That's important. And we see cultural differences in presentation of symptomatology. I always tell you about 
you know, we assist at a clinic in India and there's a village there. And uh, the ladies there tend not to have so much symptomatology. It's part of the lifestyle. And they're very tough and lean and working. And no one's saying we must go to an ancient way of living, but we can bring that philosophy into modern world. So for where we treat, the common symptoms, hot flashes, night twits, can be quite debilitating to social functioning. So those vasomotor symptoms have the indication for the use of hormone replacement therapy. And hormone replacement therapy is to replace estrogen and or progesterone, um, depending on the patient profile. So hormone replacement therapy is available in tablet form, in patch form. You get it in a cream form, right? Um, gels, etc. And the conventional HRTs have a scientific evidence base as to their benefit and risks. On regional studies were done. Um, and then the indication for use. So, for example, if a woman has not had a hysterectomy, uh, then we use combined estrogen progesterone compounds. And the reason is the progesterone protects the uterus. So if you've not had a hysterectomy, you will need both. If you've had a hysterectomy for whatever previous reason, you can just go on to estrogen only. There's some body of knowledge saying, well, it's not only progesterone is not only beneficial to the womb or the uterus, so we should take it anyway, but the jury is out on that. But from a safety point of view, if you've had a hysterectomy, you just need estrogen. Now, how do you give it? How do you deliver it is often a question. Generally, we tend to choose transdermal routes in current clinical practice, so either a patch or a gel. Um, and that's because of the lower risk of cardiovascular issues. Uh, clotting risk is the issue. So we found that giving things through the skin is a little safer from that point of view versus giving oral, but oral is not completely contraindicated. So if I got a patient, for example, severe hot flashes, night sweats, a bit of a high cholesterol, a smoker, and weight is up, I would tend towards the patch rather than a tablet. You see, certainly breast cancer risk is a big contraindication. So if the patient has had a personal history of breast cancer, a first-degree family relative with breast cancer or uh, some sort of breast uh, disease where there's fibroids and you may want to uh, do it with caution. So there, I think there's some contraindications uh, to consider. So that's your general approach to hormone replacement therapy. And you want to give hormone replacement therapy in the safest form, the lowest dose, for the least amount of years to transition through that menopause. And the, the guidance is up to three to five years, you see. So that's the conventional approach, right? And I think you have a question then on bioidenticals then yes. as well. Yeah, right. So bioidentical is a term to reference a molecule that is almost identical to the human version of the hormone. So you got various forms of estrogen in the body, estriol, estradiol, E1, E2, E3, E4, and so on. So for the most part, you want the main estrogens uh, to replace. So bioidentical hormone replacement therapy, not just for female hormones, for male hormones and other hormones as well, testosterone, DHA, etc., is a class of compounds developed through naturally occurring molecules, so plant-derived molecules that are compounded and concentrated into either tablets, also creams and gels. And these molecules are almost identical to the human molecule and theoretically are thought to then have less side effects, more well-tolerated by the body 
And these are available in generally in, in South Africa and even some of the literature I've read in America, they're used as bioidentical creams, which women can apply on their inner wrist, inner arm, inner thigh. And the drug is then delivered through the skin into the body, replacing estrogen. Now, it must be said that there may be some quality of life benefits here. Uh, it must be said as well, there isn't any major trials done, so there may be potential for side effects. And in clinical practice, the downside of these also is the application, the variability in the delivery because different people's skin is different, the vehicle may be different. So you see sometimes a lot of fluctuation with hormonal levels. So patients can, the hot flashes may improve, but then they get breast tenderness and bloating and water retention. So I think they may play a role. Uh, the, certainly the FDA recommends that if you do go that route, use the minimal dose for the shortest period of time. And they highlighted there aren't any major clinical trials in it. We use them very rarely in select patients who don't have major success with conventional approaches, don't tolerate the drugs well, or their severe contraindications. But it's important to understand it this way, that I, I think media sometimes creates a buzz that this is the way to go. Uh, but in anything, you must always go into it objectively. It, it shouldn't be polarized, impulsive approach. You know? So those yeah. are the bioidenticals by and large. Yeah. Mm. So what are your thoughts on perimenopausal women going onto the contraceptive pill as a form of HRT? I mean, we see this fairly often. Is, is this a conventional treatment? Is What are your thoughts around that? Yeah, so look, perimenopause is a time around. So it's simply put, if you don't mind the analogy, the engine hasn't seized yet, the ovarian engine. So it's a very unpredictable time. And that unpredictability, once again, is largely dependent on our background lifestyles. That's very important. So the first part is to always address. We keep coming back to that, the basics, the diet, exercise, yoga, the breathing, stop alcohol or reduce alcohol, smoking, etc. And that should ease uh, the symptomatology. If the patients are still not feeling well with that kind, always make sure you have a gynae check to make sure that the irregularity in the cycles and stuff are not due to some other cause, endometrial hyperplasia or polyps. Uh, rarely you can get cysts, et cetera, or even endometrial cancer and that sort of thing. So any irregularity in bleeding must always be checked with the gynecologist first. And then with the gynecologist or endocrinologist, once you feel safe, the base issues have been addressed, that perimenopausal period, you could consider using the pill it's not really a hormone replacement therapy, but it's what we would do in a younger patient, say with PCOS even, with an irregular cycle. You're just taking away the work of the ovary and the pill is then regulating the cycle in the meantime. But the patient is still going to go to menopause when it will cease and you'll only know that when they're off the pill really and uh, you know have that cessation of the cycle and then you test the bloods when they're off the pill. Yeah. Okay. And how long do you need to wait before a person comes off a pill to check their actual hormonal status? I I, I wait about a month at least, uh, you know, sometimes two months or so, uh, just to get that estrogen washed out and just to get an accurate assessment. But that's for menopause. Obviously, yes. if you're assessing female hormonal cycles, day 21 bloods and stuff, you want a bit of regularity before you test. I wait about three to six months sometimes if it's not too urgent. Yeah. yeah. So 
the questions always come up for me is, you know, very often we see people who are um, not coping with their life situation, who are diagnosed as clinically mm -hmm. depressed or anxious. But a lot mm -hmm. of the time I get a feeling that this is hormone related. So whether yeah. they're maybe on the pill or something is irregular in their hormone mm -hmm. cycles, they're being treated for a neurological a brain situation, mm -hmm. but it's it's, mm -hmm. it's more of an endocrine situation. What are your thoughts around that? Okay, so before I answer that question, just remember also that when patients get the hot flashes, night sweats, and this complete hormone replacement therapy contraindication, the use of antidepressants and other neurological drugs that are used even in seizure disorders may be helpful for the vasomotor symptoms, the hot flashes and the night sweats. So antidepressants like your selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, gabapentin, pregabalin, those can be used uh, under guidance, right? It is true that patients can develop depression around the time of menopause. And this is, can be a difficult one to tease out. The deficiency of hormones, in my opinion, per se, does not cause the depression, but becomes a permissive factor or lowers the threshold for the expression of some underlying issue. And that's why treating the menopause with estrogen and that sort of thing can improve mood and elevate mood and certainly must be considered in those extreme cases. But in those cases where there is some form of depression or symptomatology, I always advocate a psychological assessment and perhaps concomitant therapy on that level as well. So that makes it more holistic. I tend not to just depend on one medical modality when it comes to mind matters. To say one hormone is the cause of everything um, is too simplistic in experience. You know, while the data may suggest that, I think it's contributory and uh, certainly can help to improve symptoms. Remember, ultimately, when it comes to mind matters, the physical or gross body can't control the mind. It has a feedback to the mind. So when the body feels good, the mind feels more settled, right? But the body is always going to change. So every time it changes, the mind's going to get rattled. So when we use HRT and antidepressants, et cetera, to help with mood symptoms, the patient will feel better. But that's the time also to advocate for more inner work to develop the executive function, resilience, and self-sufficiency. So that in future, if any changes occur, then when the crutch is moved, the patient doesn't fall over. You, you're more steady and self-sufficient. I think that's important. Yeah, mm. yeah no, that makes complete sense. So let's let's chat about men briefly because, mm -hmm. you know, in the last couple of years, we've seen an increase in hormone replacement, testosterone replacement with men. Why are men seemingly mm -hmm. losing testosterone? Um has it got something to do with exogenous hormones, what's in our in our food and our, our water? Or has this always been the mm. case and we've just never really looked there? Yeah. So uh, disclaimer again, right? Um, our tendency to biomedicalize everything we must be cautious of. So now we are aware from the 1930s that menopause is defined as a clinical condition. And now we're seeing in modern times men who have testosterone at very high levels, they tend not to fluctuate on a monthly cycle, but there is a day-to-day -day circadian rhythm in testosterone in men, where it peaks early in the morning and goes through its cycle, right? Um, now, we are seeing in general a tendency towards lower testosterone levels, 
Uh, and testosterone levels do decline as we age. That's, that's normal. There's an age-related decline, which is not a disease. It's normal. But we are seeing accelerated declines in younger and younger men. The most common one reason I see that in practice is once again related to lifestyle. And this is related to obesity, uh, type 2 diabetes. As men gain weight around the belly, there's more aromatization of testosterone to estrogen. And estrogen then inhibits the pituitary testosterone axis, leading to hypogonadism. And the treatment of that is not just to replace testosterone because you're not helping them. You're, you're down-regulating the excess. is to get these patients to improve lifestyle, lose the weight, lose the belly fat. It's not about having a six-pack. It's just that strength. And also very important with the testosterone deficiency, these men may get low libido and erectile dysfunction. But the erectile dysfunction can also be a predecessor to cardiovascular problems. So we often say if you got ED, then have your heart checked as well for risk factors or yeah. uh, the stress and stuff. Now, there are some other postulates as to the declining testosterone in our environment. And this is related to the so-called estrogen dominant syndromes. If there's so much estrogen in our environment, in the water supply, chemicals, that it's leading to inhibition of male testosterone production. Now, you know, we need stronger evidence for that. There is basic evidence, but, uh, you know, endocrine societies look at these as endocrine disrupting chemicals and they're being studied for these purposes. But ultimately, uh, if a man does have a low testosterone level, the approach would be to confirm it with two results, early morning samples, do a secondary workup to exclude a cause for the low testosterone. So there are other causes as well, like testicular injury, uh, pituitary problems, hypothalamic problems. They may end up needing a scan or some dynamic hormonal test to confirm uh, hemochromatosis, for example. Too much iron in the body can affect testosterone, right? So uh, it's important to, and, and this is a concern, Nikki, because we've seen in practice a lot of primary healthcare physicians, GPs, et cetera, young guys of 20 come in, they got a low testosterone and they just get put on to testosterone therapy. And that's not ideal because that can affect fertility long-term. Um, another cause of low testosterone, we see a young guys wanting to bulk up, so they use anabolic steroids a lot. So I think it's important to be aware. I would not label male menopause as an issue. I think we're over-medicalizing things. I think an astute, individualized, objective approach to figuring out why the testosterone is low and an appropriate treatment is available through depot injections. Sometimes gels and creams as well can be used. And it's not been uncommon to use bioidenticals there as well. But it, it, it just sounds like it always, and it always does, come back to choices we make and how we choose to live our lives and what we choose to put in our mouths. But it's up to us to, to live our best lives and make those choices. So yeah. the tendency is to, to look for the, 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 the solution outside of ourselves almost all of the time. I think this is how we've been conditioned in the last couple of decades. But the solutions yeah. are almost always... Um, not outside of ourselves, if we're honest with how we're yeah. living our lives. Yeah. So you see, human intellect has given us the ability to develop good science for uh, where we need technology and uh, medication to assist people where the system's broken. It's there. But I, I don't think we should end up normalizing mass uh, you know, testosterone replacement and all of that. You, that invitation must always be there. Uh, there's a word in medicine, homeostasis, which means maintaining the internal 
balance of the body. So it's not a rigid balance. It's got to fluctuate a bit because if it was rigid, it would break very easily, you know. And the word homeostasis, the internal milieu of the body, was coined by a physician, a philosopher, Claude Bernard. I think he was French. I'm, I'm not sure. And um, he wrote a book on this. And, and one of his quotes always stands out for me, especially when I teach medical students. I say, Claude Bernard used to say that that delicate balance within us is maintained through a close and wise relationship with the environment. Uh, the emphasis is on why is there. Modern medicine with a lot of the chronic diseases we see is a reflection of how that wise relationship has been lost, leading to damage. And the necessity then for so many medications, I mean, 70% of Americans, I believe, are on chronic prescription drugs. You know, it's no way to live. So yes, the science is there. We have to use the science and the technology but at the same time, I think it's, it's as a healthcare pr practitioner, you and I need to be objective enough not to judge, uh, not to call it out, but to say, guys, there is a different narrative here and uh, we can do it better. And there's a lot of opportunity to help patients with these tools and we must. I've highlighted the, the, the pros and cons of everything. And I think it's important to look at it just in an individualized approach is necessary. Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. In, you know, there's no one size or one answer for everybody. How closely related are our circadian rhythms and our sleep cycles to our endocrine cycles? Very close. I mean, I, I wish I could show slides on this aspect. But uh, more and more in the endocrine circle, there's research emerging to show that these so-called clocks exist in our DNA even. And these clocks have various rhythms linked to the sun cycle. There's a whole list of time of day dependent hormones. So everything from cortisol, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, your appetite hormones like ghrelin and leptin, prolactin as well, which is involved in breastfeeding, etc. They all have a time of day dependent rhythm. So the minute we stress these hormones out of that rhythm, then we're getting various sort of um, um, release of hormones that are against the natural rhythm. And the area under curve, as we call it, may change. So you're exposed to a certain hormone for a longer period or a shorter period. And over a period of time, that can have a deleterious effect on the body. You know, And uh, these are being studied more. And the invitation, once again, you see there's two things that happen. If you see the signs of it, then sustainable development ought to be we try and live within nature's rhythm to achieve our life goals. And then the other approach is to hell with that science. Let's develop a pharmaceutical, live as we please, and the pharmaceutical must now re-alter the hormones back to the uh, normal rhythm. So I don't know, you know, maybe I'm a bit of a cynic, but... Uh, if we keep doing that, how many pills are we going to be taking just to maintain that internal homeostasis? I think I think with us speaking with COVID-19 and looking at where things are going with medical diseases, it, it's an opportune time to question our traditional approach and uh, maybe recalibrate a bit. I completely agree. But just, you know, on the subject of sleep, I, I see people that at least I work with and their lack of respecting the sleep cycles and not really understanding how or not wanting to understand how important rest, recuperation and actual sleep is, is as much of a contributor to 
the physical state they're finding themselves in as as their poor eating choices, as their smoking choices. It is it is so critical, and still very few people understand how far-reaching not getting sleep, proper sleep at at at, a, at a, an appropriate time for your brain is to their longevity, to their health, to their hormones. Uh, yeah, so the, the the point you're highlighting in that statement is the non-receptivity, where at face value, the science speaks for itself, the logic is there. Ancient cultures have recognized rhythms. I mean, the yogic practices, they talk of Surya Namaskar. Surya means sun salutation. So you wake up early in the morning, you do your study, you get your exercise, you do your purpose-driven work during the day, and at night, it's time to put the, the eyes to rest and you go to sleep. The modern culture is we go into partying, clubbing, uh, you know, burning the midnight oil for profit through the night. Then we wake up at four in the morning and hit the gym intensely, which is probably not the right time. You know, most action should be after six, uh, before six, you know, uh, do your thinking work in the morning. So these rhythms have been lost. On the point of receptivity, why some see it and some don't, and this is why I always say we cannot stand in judgment. It depends on the desire pattern of the individual person's mind. If they have very strong desires, it clouds reason and logic. And until the person's exhausted the desires and found that the approach is uh, wanting, or you've suffered enough to actually have the question, okay, is there a different way? Until then, nobody is going to be receptive to higher knowledge and logic. And this is the term patience. Actually, the word patient in Greek means to suffer for a period of time for a positive outcome in the long term, right? So when we're saying to our friends and partners and people have patience, we're actually asking them to suffer for a while, but with the intention of a positive outcome in the long term. Yeah, we've been asked this question over and over. Just do you have to suffer before you ask the question? And it seems yes, it's the human condition. You have yeah. to suffer first to, before before the, the penny drops, unfortunately. Yeah. Challenge and suffering and sometimes even uh, non-judgmental criticism is the pruning process towards providence. It's an important thing to think about it uh, yes. without that pressure. The, the questions won't come up on what is the alternative and it will keep pointing you into one higher direction eventually. It's yes. an important philosophical point to be aware of. Yes. Thank you once again for joining me for another episode of the Reinvent Health Podcast. As usual, all of my guests' details can be found in the show notes page on Apple Podcast, Anchor or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. Please don't forget to rate on Apple and leave a review. 